history with the podcast guy, Matt King. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to our podcast. Unfortunately, for some, our topics that we talk about may be offensive to some people. The topics that we discuss could also be triggers, and we want you to be aware of that. If you are in need of help, please talk to a professional, a family member, or a friend. We are not medical professionals, and we don't claim to be. We are just two guys with a microphone and a platform. Please listen with discretion. Welcome to This Time in History, guys. I'm Matthew, and we're back again with another interview covering the 2022 municipal election. Uh, With me today, she's running for Mayor of Toronto, Miss Chloe Marie Brown. Welcome to the show. Uh, Hi. You can just call me Chloe for today. (laughs) Sounds great. You know, I I love this city. Um, I've been a lifelong resident. Um, I don't think I've ever said that, but I think it's obvious. And I love municipal politics because you're not dealing with parties or rules and you have to say this and you have to toe the the party line. You're you're, moreover, you're investing in one person. Yeah. And it's it's all about the person's message and it's about the person. And that's what I love about municipal politics. Yeah, it's one of those um, Rudy stories, you know, where it's just like, yeah, if everyone rallies around the underdog, so much great things can happen. And yeah, I do love that rebellious side of it because it's like, yeah, politics and political parties have become marketing firms (laughs) and you're constantly given like campaigns, uh, sound bites. It's just become so watered down that I personally like like local politics because you talk to people directly. You know what I mean? Um, MPPs are like distant, MPs are even further. So it's like, yeah, I really just enjoy being able to find my local counselor and have a conversation because politics shouldn't be elitist. Absolutely. Accessibility. That is one thing that the current... Um... We're getting a, a, a bit, anyway, whatever. <laughs> um, that is what the current administration does not have, accessibility. When's the last time anyone's called John Tory and got through? I mean, unless you're calling his personal cell phone, which means you have his number and he'll answer it. But we're actually talking about normal, regular people like you and I. Mm-hmm. Um, I Personally, I'll tell you, I've I've emailed him, I've texted him, I've tweeted him, yeah. no, nothing until actually just today, I got an email that says, I appreciate you uh, uh, reaching out, but I, I, I cannot give you the interview. That's probably because I've been running him down for the last, I don't know, where are we, five months now? Yeah. <laughs> but, any, but anyway, this is about you. Um, I'm, I'm interested to know all there is to know about, uh, what you're doing, what your movement is, but let's start off with why are you running? Why this election and why now? Okay. So, um, like you mentioned about accessibility, uh, the Rogers outage really, it really started to like put the gears in my back, wind me up a little bit. And honestly, it's just become a fight between like Rogers city or Toronto. Like it's, that's it. 
it's not voting John Tory, it's voting for Rogers at this point. <laughs> and it really grinds my gears that John Tory for a third time would try this with the same platform, like no real change in it. And he expects to just walk across the finish line and collect $200,000 plus the $100,000 that Rogers gives him to sit on the board. And that's just greedy. And Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's just like, as a policy analyst, I, I could be in a non-partisan. I could sit back and enjoy my little salary, but it's just like, I have friends and family that I care about. They have friends and families that they care about and how selfish of it of me would it be to not use this policy knowledge to help other people you know what i mean and that's why i decided to run because after watching tory's campaign kick off and then i saw gills and gill is a very nice person really great idea about parks and roads but he decided to run to be the left-wing voice and the majority of us as working class people are not left-wing or right-wing we're just here to help our friends and family. Like politics, we leave that up to the lobbyists, the campaign managers, yada, yada, yada. But over the last, since like 2016, I've just been watching democracy be unwound for the purpose of profit. And that just doesn't sit well with my soul, if I can say that. Um, when I think about like all of the work my grandparents, my parents put in, like their faith deserves to be rewarded. You know what I mean? And that mm -hmm. reward is democracy. It's not raw capitalism that John Tory has been giving us for the last eight years. And frankly, like, <laughs> I don't know how to say this, but it's like, he does have to go home. He does have to get the hell out of here. And like, it has to happen now because it's disrespectful to all of us that he expects another four years after producing nothing Working class people would be fired from their jobs after like a bad performance review in six months. How much Absolutely. greater should his responsibility be? So, yeah, that's why I'm running. I, I'm right there with you. And you know what? Honestly, the one thing that he said he was going to do, which was smart track, not happening. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's just he's over promised. And instead of walking out with dignity, He's coming back for a third time. And it's like, do you think we're idiots? Like, if you really love this city, you would walk away from this because you're clearly not ready for this job. But it's just like, he's so greedy that he's coming back for a third time. Like, how much money does John Tory need? How much power does John Tory need while the rest of us are barely making rent, barely making groceries, gas? Like, John Tory could retire off his pension, but he insists on robbing us. And that to me is unacceptable. Especially with, um, what was I going to say? Oh, I, I had it in the top of my Sorry. head. No, it's okay. You know what? He, it's, it's, it's time for a fresh start. That's what this, this whole election has been about. You know, we need, we need, uh, uh, fresh ideas we need new blood down at city hall we need a culture reset yes a renaissance e if you will even if that means rookie counselors and a rookie mayor across the board i am okay with that because you know what we haven't tried it we've tried john tory's plan for eight years it didn't work and you know what um 
I, I, I don't know if you're a Rob Ford fan. I was, but that's okay if you're not. I think what he was doing was working. And then before him, we had uh, David Miller for eight, was it eight, eight, seven, eight years, whatever. Yeah. Um, other than the garbage strike, I don't really remember much about his reign. And then there was Mel Lastman, which obviously you can say lots about Mel Lastman. We did an episode on him earlier in our podcast. But um, yeah. so going back, like the only thing that I can figure that John Tory wants is uh, to be known as the longest running mayor in Toronto's history. Yeah. And he's not doing it to better our lives. He's doing it to like impress Ted Rogers like, <laughs> from beyond the grave <laughs> and like that to me is bewildering. You know what I mean? This is what the private sector is for. But instead he came into the public arena where me and my friends play, live, work, and he dismantled every. That to me is just so twisted to do, you know? Like if you're such a professional leader and you care about this city, respectfully walk away. And his refusal to do that, just like it's such an insidious type of greed, because it's not like John Tory is out here pushing and beating people up. He's just robbing you with exactly like, bad ideas. When, when when he registered, there was no email, no phone number, no nothing yeah. until until recently. And you know what? I could say that about uh, 90 percent of the incumbents. They put their name down. There was no email. There was no phone number. There was no website, no links, nothing. I know because I've been on that site every day since May the 2nd. I'm driving my wife nuts <laughs> because of this. I'm on yeah. that site at least once a day, sometimes three, four, five, and six times a day. Every time there was a new person, I'm reaching out, and that's how I reached out to you. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to talk about the budget if, if, uh, if that, that's all right with you, I, I should, yeah. you know what, actually we're not there yet. Let's talk okay. about your, let's talk about your platform. And, uh, I'm interested to know about your platform, uh, what your ideas are. And if you've started your door knocking or your community engagement, what kinds of things are you hearing? Okay. So first things first, the platform is a three point plan for restoring democracy, uh, first point, it's a co-determination bylaw. I borrowed it from Germany. And essentially what it does is limit corporate powers to 50% on board of directors. A lot of people don't think about it, but board of directors, it's an appointment to power. You get to decide, you get to implement, and not a lot of working class people get that opportunity because the eligibility is always like, yeah, you need a master's, a PhD, you need to have made million dollars. But meanwhile, there's so many very educated people in our city who could be informing these decisions. Uh, the reason why I looked at this one particularly is because of construction workers. I really think that there's an opportunity to get more technicians and operators at the planning table for housing, transit, and all those other really important infrastructure projects because the, and I say this respectfully to executives, but it's just like too many strategists in a room and nothing gets done. You just have a bunch of people like theorizing it, about how things get done. It's the same. It's the same old phrase. Too many chefs in the kitchen. Yes, exactly. So it's <laughs> like, let's get the sous chef. Let's get the pastry chef. Let's get the people who actually get the food to table. Because what point is the meal if it doesn't get to the consumer, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, my second point would be to do a program review and audits of our services, just so that the 
digital, social, and physical environments are congruent, the same. And just earlier in our conversation about accessibility, I will fully admit before I worked with people with disabilities, I didn't realize how inaccessible the internet is. Like to use a screen reader, to have to find captions and even bright colors if you have autism or a photosensitivity, like these things matter. And for me, it's just like, if we can't, if we just have AODA without actually taking it and applying it to the physical infrastructure, the social infrastructure and the digital, what is the point of it, you know? Accessibility is something all of us need. Like I get temporarily injured and I'm temporarily disabled. People get disabled with age. People get disabled through injury. And like accessibility should be so ubiquitous that we don't have to think about it. It's, for example, like glasses. People don't think about people with glasses as disabled because we're so used to seeing them. And that's what I ultimately want to do, just raise the bar. So it's just like, yeah, we're not afraid to talk about like being disabled, needing accessibility or accommodations because it's a natural part of life. Like no one's perfect, you know? Um, and then my last one, it's a um, public benefit corporation. So the city of Toronto is a corporation itself, but to legally create structures for public benefit, I would implement that model. And what a public benefit corporation would be is like a project management office for like inclusive hiring, getting accommodation specialists onto public job sites because not all jobs need an able-bodied person, frankly. And it's managing the employment agreements that are created through community benefit agreements um, the, what those are legal structures for inclusive hiring, uh, getting apprenticeship hours, which is like a whole nother subject. But essentially what I want for this benefit corporation is to manage environmental sustainability, social governance, and sorry, social well-being and good governance tax incentives. So let's say you're a firm. If you want a tax rebate, Show me that you've hired people who need jobs. Show me that you're doing training. Show me that you're adopting like an urban food, like rooftop where you can, sorry. Can I, yeah. can I ask a question? Yes. How do you, how do you determine, um, you said, you said, show me that you're hiring people that need jobs. How do you determine who needs a job? Just, I'm just asking this because I'm, I'm, I'm actually really interested. This is a really good idea, but I, I'm just wondering about that. So in my day job, I'm actually a policy analyst in workforce development programs. I work at uh, the Future Skills Center, and what they do is fund different projects that are trying to create programs that give you the skills needed in the future. So um, one of them that I was really interested in is the microfactory. And it's operated remotely. So if you're a person with disabilities, you can put on a headset, do 3D laser cutting, you could operate collaborative robots, you could also do a variety of um, AutoCAD functions, and you could do it like from your wherever you are. And yeah, I study, basically I study labor. So it's like, I hear about the labor gap. And the truth is there's no labor gap. There is an employer bias that is stopping a lot of people from getting hired because I meet these people every day. Um, I deal with students, I deal with employers, job seekers, and I hear that people, like, we need to hire people. We need marginalized people. We need these people. And it's because baby boomers are retiring. 
uh, climate goals need to be changed. And there's this really big need to just get more people involved. And yeah, I used to do resume writing as a job developer. So I would be dealing with people that are really at their most vulnerable because it's, they're coming in because rent is about to be due, utilities are due, and they've sent their resume to a hundred employers and they've gotten automated systems. So it's like my job to go directly to employers and advocate for them. And that's why I wanted a public benefit corporation because we have all these job services, but they're not operating in a in an inclusive way. Because you go to one job service, yeah, someone might know something about a sector, but they don't know how to find accommodations. Or they may know something about like hospitality and retail jobs, but they don't know how to upgrade you to like a manager role. So by getting all that data together and what I'm hoping to do is take apart the Toronto Employment Social Service Department and move employment with the economic development unit and then take social services to social development and finance to make a more balanced approach to how we train people and how we provide supports while they're in training. Because that is the thing that's gonna fix the economy. Like there's so many opportunities now and people want to train for them, but it's expensive. And these training programs are like 12 weeks of free training, you know, but how do you pay the bills? So having a local body to help that and coordinate that because not everyone is well versed in navigating Ontario Works, ODSP, EI, and all these really complex like worker design programs that are not useful because it's the way they're designed is for reporting. It's not user friendly to me or you as a person. It's user friendly to the academic that needs to report the numbers. So yeah, just providing an extra hand to help people actually work because people want to, they just want good jobs. Um, and we can do that. You, That's plenty. Uh, I've never asked this question, but you're actually qualified to answer. And since you brought it up, um, uh, so I was, uh, I was raised a, a, in a low income family. My mom, I'm not going to mince words. My mom was poor. We lived in housing. Yeah. So, I mean, I have tons of friends who, um, who I grew up with that are on the low income scale and have had to deal now in their adult life with welfare workers who yeah. technically the program is a provincial program. However, the workers are city of Toronto employees. Isn't that correct? Mm -hmm. So yeah. the main thing that I hear from a lot of people that are on the on Ontario works, not so much ODSP because they're very understanding and they're very, um, uh, what's the word accommodating. Yeah. It's the OW workers. They're either, uh, uh, they don't want to be there. They don't uh, care. I, I, I don't know what it is. Um, but I'm just wondering if there's more that we can do, uh, to help the people because I mean, I've been on o OW, I'll, I'll be honest. And honestly, mm -hmm. it, it took, I felt like taking the money, I was trading my dignity. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. I've absolutely been there. Um, full disclosure, in my 20s, I was applying for a housing development 
didn't realize that we ended up living at Covenant House from like September to August. I had a full-time job working and yeah, that's how I actually got involved in politics because I couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that this is public service and the public cannot access it. To yeah. your point, it's management. Management doesn't really put people, and I'm not saying this to knock any existing managers, but it's just like the way that the province is set up, it's like Ontario like operates Ontario Works, but it's delivered through the city. If there's confusion at the provincial level, people at the local level are going to reflect that. And that's happening more and more as Doug Ford uh, is moving Ontario Works and ODSP to a service system model, which is similar to one that is in the state, which is like a welfare to work program. And they're trying to really, and this is the problem with not including the communities things are designed for in the design process because people do want to work people want to get off these systems but it's not designed for that it's designed to like really really make you pull yourself up by your bootstraps even if you don't have boots and the it's not logical you know what i mean i i've heard of people having to liquidate their assets before having to go on these assistance programs and it's like how does that make sense? They're maybe saving that asset. So when the rainy day comes, they have something. But if you're in in the glass box of privilege and you just look down at people from that glass box and you don't even bother hearing their side of the story, that's when apathy just spreads. And it's a matter of design, like from the province trickling down to local services. It's like, if the service isn't people focused, it's going to be bad, even if it's a necessity. So yeah, like I, I fully sympathize with you because I was on Ontario Works and I was like, so do you want me to get off of this or do you want me to stay in poverty? Because they were clawing back 50 cents of every dollar. So it's like, how do you even save if they're clawing back what you could have been saving? So I think not a lot of people realize that because luckily, like if you're able-bodied, if you're young, you can just sell yourself to the market. They love that. But the older you get the less cute you are, you know what I mean? And yeah, they don't design things for people useful and like productive, a productive. I say it this way because it's like productive could be anything. It's the government's defining what productive is. We'd all be serving $2,500 cocktails to them at banquet halls, you know what I mean? So yeah, um, it's a matter of design. And I, my heart goes out to those people because the city could do better by them if they wanted to and this is where like John Tory and his glass box of privilege would never understand the pressure and the loss of dignity that comes with having to constantly disclose your situation to get basic income so so yeah sorry I'm gonna jump in yeah. as, a, as a policy analyst again mm -hmm. you're you're qualified to answer this um could the problem lie in the language of the those specific City of Toronto con employment contracts? Could could the language be changed yes. to a manner in which I don't want to say forces, but mm -hmm. I don't have a better word, so I'm going to say forces them to treat people like a human being instead of a piece of garbage. 
it's a matter of design, you know? Um, if these systems were being created with the users of the system, it would be better. And this is where the city of Toronto can be hosting these community town halls. You know what I mean? It's not that hard for the city to mobilize its resources and send a letter to you and be like, hey, we want to improve this. Come to this meeting at X time or come on Zoom and let us know. And this is where um, the pandemic has kind of been helpful because no one was really thinking about remote attendance the way they should have been. And that is a huge barrier to the city because if you're not available nine to five, how do you get heard? And like, it's a matter of design. It's one of those really um, covert things about policy. And you're absolutely right. It's all about the language and the legal frameworks that are created to incentivize certain behaviors. And when you look at how the province behaves towards poor people, working people, it's like, it's no wonder that the workers are can be callous and like indifferent because it doesn't matter like you're just a file to them and that's how the language is treated like they're supposed to just and this is one of the things about separating yourself when you're at work it's just like you can't do that because it dehumanizes you and that dehumanization spreads and that's why it's really important to me to start redesigning policy because it's like we can be inclusive we can do these things that we set out to do. It's just like the language defines the culture and that defines the practices that we hold sacred. So we have to unlearn that stuff because it's not working anymore. Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk about the budget uh, now yeah. that we're, we're here. So, you know, we got a lot of big decisions to make at, well, actually the next council does. And, and these are important ones. We, we can't afford to get them wrong this time. We need the right people elected you know we have 1.6 billion dollar backlog in tchc repairs you know yeah. and and the ttc says they're going to be half a billion dollars short in their funding according to their numbers but uh not short enough that uh mr ceo doesn't get a 21 percent increase and you know i'm sure you know this the city's bleeding money and yeah. we can't afford to just be throwing money around everywhere and i'm just wondering uh what uh, what do you see happening? What what uh, do you think can be done about it? And uh, anything else you want to say about the budget? So one of the policies I'm running on is a land value tax, and it will be built on a, a regression model. So uh, basically, it's built on statistical information about like locations. Um, how renters on this area, etc. And what I essentially want to do is update the tax system. A land value tax doesn't tax the property or the structures or the things on the land. It just taxes the land. That will allow us to correct some of these housing prices. And essentially, when there's a property tax correction, that's passed down to the renters. So that's like prong one. Uh, prong two is essentially... Re reviving the vacancy tax so it has to be done i'm just like i think it's kind of insane that there's all these cranes in the sky and no affordable space on the ground so yeah that is like my main priority figure out where these vacant places are tax them uh number three is like i really want to develop the rent safe system i don't think a lot of people realize but there is no way to track and support renters because there's no like 
property tax uh, registry or homeowner registry for renters. We're, we're not really being supported through tracking systems. Um, I know it sounds a little much, but what I really want to do is get get tenants to start registering. It's the only way we're going to find out where legal rooming houses are, legal rooming houses, garden suites, all that stuff. And that way we can start mobilizing tenants towards actually getting decent living quality. And we can send out those letters <laughs> to get them those tax rebates because that's like the one advantage of this housing crisis. If you're a renter, like who's going to find you? Who knows where you are? There's no way to do that. So um, yeah, like there's a reliance on us being transient. So the only way to counter that is by having a system where we can register and allowing tenants to register, not just landowners, because there's bad agents on both sides, but it's just like, I want to hear personally from tenants. Like, where do you live? Is it a decent living space? Do you have like, does your stove work? Cause I've been to places where it's like one burner works and there's no incentive for the landlord to change it because it's a rooming house. He knows you're going to be cycled out of there at the end of the semester. So yeah, we just really need to invest in and it's not even invest, but like just change procedures, update them, modernize them. And as a policy person, like that is what I live for. <laughs> so yeah, like that's kind of my approach to the budget. It's just like modernizing the systems, getting an updated land value tax. So it's just like we can correct the speculation, identify foreign investors, identify even domestic ones because there's landlords two three houses and unless you can defy physics you can't be in two places at once we need to have balance and yeah everyone has a right to profit but like who's gonna lose their soul for profit not me you know so um yeah that and moving parking authority to see planning so yeah i think we should be using parking funding to build better infrastructure period um also, additionally, I'm thinking about merging different departments. Uh, since John Tory's got in, he's made a lot of appointments, created a lot of task force committees. There's a lot of replication and they're really well paid. Um, the way I see it, like a $200,000 director job can be broken down into other jobs. We can hire people. And that to me is more important than having the best executive leading something, you know what I mean? Because the more local people have purchasing power, the more it's gonna return to us in the local economy. So yeah, just democratizing everything so that there's more money in our pockets and also just fairness because the current system is not tilted towards a fairness between homeowners and renters. It's basically just homeowners, rent pair associations. If you've got a property, like you'll be represented. And it's so like deeply unfair to me and that needs to be fixed. And yeah, that's that's kind of how I see the ballot, like the budget getting balanced throughout the years, because the more you and I have to spend in the local economy, the more it gets returned. But yeah. absolutely absolutely. Sorry. No, no, it's all good. Um Moving along to transit, you know, we've seen the them the transit uh what's the word I'm looking for? Expand into the uh north into York region. I'm just wondering yeah. if you would support expansion into the west into Peel region, into the east and Durham region, and ultimately 
what's transit look like within the next four years of, of council and anything else you want to say on that topic? Yes. So one of the first things I want to do is change the composition of the TTC board. Right now it's six councillors, four members of the public. And I think there needs to be someone from the back end and the front end who are not union reps on that board. Because we could be using TTC operators to collect data, help us use that data to uh, plan better routes, et cetera. And with the move from parking authority to city planning, I'm hoping to create a pot for infrastructure out of parking, uh, ending John Tory's city building fund and the new revenue captured from the land value tax plus the vacancy, et cetera. So I think one of the biggest things we're going to have to do is just make TTC AODA accessible. Um, nothing's more stressful than watching a mother and her stroller come down those stairs because there's no elevator. Like there's so I, many. Yeah, I've, I've like, done it. I, I, I've done it. Yeah, it's. I don't know how parents do it because it's like, right, like the subway is hectic. There's not enough people, like people-friendly operators directing traffic and all that. Like there's customer service lacking at the stations and I hope to revive that without having like enforcement officers. Um, additionally, like cycling, the cycling network, that's the hugest thing in my area. I'm in so integrating like the cycling network to feed into the transit network to do that last mile trip is something I also want to look at. And with TTC also, it's just, there's not enough people, like there's not enough people working in skill trades. So it's like, I really would like to work with TTC to figure out like, how can we get an apprentice program started? How can we create better partnerships with Metrolinks to get more local workers building these lines in their community? Um, and when you talk about regional transit, I'll be frank, like Metrolinx is cannibalizing us. I'm building so much things and duplicating so much service because of the politics around regional transit that I'm going to just work with them to get community benefits from their transit developments. Because yeah, right now, even with the Ontario line, it's just like, I would love to fight that on that, but I have other priorities. So it's like being able to get those transit dollars to fix TTC is my priority. Let Doug have go transit, but TTC is ours. And I would, I'd hope if there's revenue, like just getting priority signaling. That's like a big thing that I forgot, but priority signaling for all of, all of transit, because I, I work with someone who has a vision impairment and there's ways that we could be having sensors beat their phones to let them know where traffic is and I think having priority sensors and building up a network a neural network for traffic management is essential and it can be done because look how much data we have now just from our phones moving around we as residents could be helping the engineers and all those, the urban planners plan these routes we can help them plan for alternate routes when there's construction. It's just about getting the people together because yeah, engineering planning, it's very academic. And if you don't understand what's happening, you'll feel excluded. So what about, yeah, uh, what, what about the, uh, 
whether or not the LRTs can run in the winter. I got to tell you, you know, I used to live in the former Ward 6, which is Ward 3, Etobicoke Lakeshore. Yeah. And, be- and between construction and the winter, that's the- that streetcar was not running half the time anyway. So yeah. I'm just wondering, uh, in your opinion, you know, are we wasting all these money on, on all this money on LRTs that are not going to be able to run during the winter? I don't think so. I think what we're lacking is like a winterizing policy. I don't know why like Canada is so inaccessible. <laughs> Sorry, during the winter, but it's because like we don't there's no investment in actually getting us outside. You know what I mean? And I feel like that plays out when you're walking through the city and it's like, oh, like, where is the snowplow? Like, for the love of God, where is it? And I would like to invest in better winterizing. Um, I read something that, like, there are people who use pickle juice as a way to um, replace rock salt. There's so many different ways that we could be winterizing through different types of methods it's just about the coordination of it and the political will to do that you know what i mean um i think it's been lacking because most politicians can just go to blue mountain and go to the cottage the rest of us gotta schlep through this so yeah or 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 their or their 10 million dollar florida mansion when we're all (laughs) supposed to stay home anyway (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh i want to talk about the unhoused and affordable housing you know yeah. I mean, you you must have seen that horrible, horrible scene at Trinity Bellwoods Park uh, yeah. when all those unhoused people were displaced and all their stuff was thrown out. I was horrified. I was offended. I was upset. And I mean, it was before that 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 I needed that I felt like John Tory needed to leave. But that was the day that sealed it. If if yeah. I if I wasn't sure before, I was definitely sure then. Um, that was completely disgusting and it was an embarrassment to this city that that happened and that, and that he instructed the police, you know, there are plenty of candidates, plenty of counselors, plenty of, uh, uh, um, politicians that say, oh, the mayor doesn't control the police. I don't believe that for anything, because that is an example of him controlling the police. He sat um, on the Toronto Police Service Board. Exactly. And that, like, that's, that's the thing. It's just, like, his lack of spine for taking accountability for his own actions is what aggravates me. Like, we do it every day. And when we're talking about the homeless, it's like, so you're kicking them out from being outside? That means you're going to have to lock them up. Like, it's criminalization for no reason. And this is... I'm going to try and remain cool, but it's just like, that is something that like makes me indignant. Like, how do you treat people who don't have homes with such brutality because a few people want to use the park? You know, it's so, it's kind of hypocritical because it's like, if an urban man goes to a rural park, he's camping. A rural man comes to an urban park, he's homeless. You know what I mean? It's, it's privilege, it's class and it's status. And Honestly, we could have did like with modular housing. We could have had tiny houses and parking lots. We could have done so much. There was actually a young man who was building houses and they punished him for it. And and this is the this is what's really sick about it. It's not like we can't fix it. Like 
we had hotels, we had all this infrastructure to help homeless people, but we choose every day to be blind to it because it doesn't fit into the aesthetic of the city. Well, on that, I, I wanted to ask you about these, yeah. uh, um, I don't know what else to call them. I don't want to call them homeless hotels, but yeah. uh, hotels for the unhoused that the city is is on the hook for, that they're paying, that these hotels, they could just jack up the price because the city will pay more. The city is is on the hook for them. So that I wanted to ask about that. I also wanted to ask about um, what more we can, we can do uh, to help these people because they, they don't deserve to be unhoused and they don't deserve to be treated like a disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for the affordable housing contingent, I mean, we're seeing, um, we're, we're seeing condo buildings the last 10 years, we've seen them go up. They're still going up. There's a, a nice fresh set to go up uh, in Etobicoke on the Queensway. Yeah. Um, there's supposed to be an affordable housing contingent with each condo. I don't know if it's 5%, 10%, but apparently I've just learned there's sort of a legal loophole yeah. that um, they apparently according uh, that I may be wrong and, and I'm wrong often, but this, I think I'm right about okay. um, there. So if they list uh, 5% of the units, below market level that's technically considered affordable housing and then they get out of it but that is i I promised myself i would never swear on political interviews but um and i'm not going to but uh it's it's bull um and i'm just wondering as a political analyst and as a, a candidate for mayor is there a way around that? Can we change the language that exists in those policies or contracts or whatever it is to help these people? And sorry, and I'm going to let you speak. I just wanted one more thing. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but on Lakeshore and Etobicoke, Lakeshore and Islington, basically it's Lakeshore and 8th street. There was supposed to be, there's a, there's a huge um, building there and they were going to, retrofitted or or renovate it to be a homeless shelter and that was kaput i don't know if that was because of community outcry or the cost was too big or whatever uh but there's that and i'm just wondering i mean these 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 people need a break they need something to happen in their favor and now i'm going to shut up and i'm going to let you talk about all things uh unhoused people and uh affordable housing okay So in the 70s, the government decided to download all of its responsibilities. And this is why we're in the place that we are, because it's just like no one wants to take responsibility or be held accountable in politics. And that's something that just kind of makes me sick, because it's like, why would you come to the one place where we do this? But um, in terms of housing, it's like the city has enough land that it could build its own housing. The city could hire builders, designers, architects. It could be doing these things, but no one wants to be held responsible. And maybe this is my advantage because it's just like, I don't intend on making this my lifelong career. So it's like, yeah, I will be the bad guy and I will be the one to be, to get this done because I don't think it's right that five people from a community can block a hundred people from getting housing. And someone needs to be 
the bad guy to the home association and say like, hey, do you want nurses? Do you want doctors? Do you want even a barista? Because these this is where they have to live for them, for you to get all those fun little services you love so much. You know what I mean? It's, I hate to be the aggressive person on this, but it's just like a lot of people, especially at consultations, don't realize like you denying someone housing is prolonging their suffering because you don't like, yeah. And that's the thing. Like you don't like childcare because children are noisy. Okay, cool. Prolong that child suffering from not having education Pro- like, and take responsibility for it. And I don't think a lot of politicians make residents take responsibility for it because it's just like, I want you to vote for me. I want you to like me. And unfortunately in the world of policy which i work you have to be objective and empathetic and that is the only way that democracy can be achieved in policy because whether people like it or not construction has to happen buses have to go things have to happen it's called civilization you know so yeah i would use public land Set up tiny houses, demolish parking lots, get rid of parking minimums. We could have so much housing if we got rid of parking minimums. And that's the thing. It's just like there's so much land in the city that we could be using for transitional small housing that it's unacceptable to me to hear like, oh, like we had to do this because we had no other options. You did. You chose not to use them. Like this government have built housing since before I was born. You mean to tell me you can't wrestle up like, a construction crew and build a 12 story like apartment like is it really that hard people like and that's what really frustrates me it's we can get it done it's just the lack of political will there doesn't have to be unhoused people in the second largest country in the world you know what i mean it's it's a choice that politicians make every day and when i was an intern i heard counselors say like oh the homeless choose to be homeless like how can you make decisions for people if that's the way you think of them? Like no one leaves home if it's safe. Like logically, no one leaves home if it's safe. So it's like that type of apathy, it needs to be dealt with by working class people because people in privilege, they live in a glass box. And yeah, they might weep for us and they might throw some charitable donations, but they would never invite us to eat at their table. And it's that type of, apathy that can only be confronted by like building the housing whether or not they like it you know what I mean because yeah like it's it doesn't have to be this way we have like shipping containers tiny houses modular 3d printing there's so many ways to make housing it's just who's going to take responsibility for it who's willing to be accountable when neighbors are upset and that's something that spineless john doesn't have so you- yeah, that's kind of my position on housing. Like it can get done, it will get done. And if I have to hire like public builders to do it, I will do it because I don't like the idea of being the one to prolong suffering. Like that would make me a sociopath, you know what I mean? And that's not who I am. So yeah, that's that's how I see it. That's not uh, aggressive, that's passion, your passion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I am. <laughs> uh, let's move on. I wanted to talk about crime and police. Mm. I'm sure you have a lot to say on that. Um, 
I would love to know your opinion on Toronto's crime rate, what we can do to lower it, um, and then anything you want to say on uh, your opinion of the relationship between the Toronto Police Service and the City of Toronto. Okay. So my first adult job, I was a security guard at Government Nightclub. And I remember that place. Yeah. So it was like my first interactions with crime was like in a closed space. It's filled with police. It's a very like lively place and it's at the bottom of Toronto. So it's like, yeah, I would see things. And a lot of it, it's just like Toronto's not set up for an entertainment culture. It's a chug your beer and rage in the streets type of culture. So that is something that could really change if like the police were more about like crowd management from a community perspective versus like law enforcement. Because yeah, people get drunk all the time. They're going to act a fool, but like we don't have to beat people up. You know what I mean? It's just directing the taxis to pick them up it's making sure that everyone gets out um secondly what i really like is the separation of mental health services from law enforcement i really think that was an essential move because like i'm not going to pretend that violent crimes don't happen but not all of them are motivated by the same things or the factors that created them are the same things um when i was working downtown it's like yeah club district mental health is everywhere a lot of the time it's people just looking for food people looking for change people just looking for like the bare necessities and by having social workers out the shelter and support housing program um from streets to homes i think just expand like moving some of toronto police foundation's funding into that is a great step building out that service even further to like have transitional services like rehab, mental health, et cetera, is good. Um, additionally, I would support the community justice centers. Um, it's a provincial program that tries to divert nonviolent offenders out of the court systems using restorative justice, re drug rehabilitation, and a variety of social services instead of incarceration. Um, that was really helpful for young kids in robberies because a lot of people don't, yeah, like robbery is heinous, but a lot of the time it's like kids just wanting fast money. And if you want to get kids off of the mindset of fast money, give them something to do. Restart at like after school programs, give them, give their little idle hands something. And that's, yeah, youth services has been getting steadily defunded since I was a youth. And like Rob Ford thought like coaching football was enough, but not everyone's a football player, you know? And I think a greater diversity of programs for young people is so important because yeah, I was one of those science kids. I wanted a microscope and I wanted to be able to do popular mechanics for kids, but I grew up at Islington and Finch. I didn't have those opportunities because of Mike Harris's <laughs> unwinding of the education system. So it's like, we can break different parts of policing up and still have a unit for dealing with violent offenses while changing the roles of police to deal with nonviolent offenses. So like, Oh, sorry, I'm going to jump in. Uh, yeah. So you don't believe that uh, uh, police 
like do you believe that police need to be uh, they they're not really held accountable right now and they need to be held accountable they need to be held accountable based on a modern system okay so and this yeah this is where um so as whole- a so right. i'm sorry i'm going to jump in uh yeah. because this is something that actually i've i've uh something that i came up with that i want to pass along okay well, I think I came up with it. Maybe it's maybe it's just something that hasn't been talked about for years. I don't know. Anyway, um, you're a political. You're sorry, not a political. You are a policy analyst. So, what about change? Okay, so when Rob Ford was mayor, mm-hmm. and he had to renegotiate the city contracts, yes, he changed the language in the contracts mm-hmm. and took out the jobs for life um, clause. Yes. Okay. So in the Toronto Police Service contracts, mm-hmm. I bet there's a similar clause. Yes. So removing that mm-hmm. and replacing it with a, I don't know, three okay. three strikes and you're out uh, clause. So these three strikes could be anything from harassing, mm-hmm. so harassing, Sorry, that's my dog. Harassing someone, um, 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 any, any, any three things, and then they could be up. They're they're up for termination. It it takes away. It takes out a lot of the roadblocks mm-hmm. since since the city pays for the Toronto Police Service, and the mayor sits on the board. Mm-hmm. I I don't buy that. We don't control the Toronto Police. That is, um, yes. That, that... It's malarkey. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. <laughs> yes. So to your point, the Toronto Police Services mandate can be changed. And one of the things I wanted to do was take crime prevention off of their responsibilities because how can law enforcement prevent crime? They're literally designed to enforce the law when crime happens. So taking that entirely out of their scope is the first start. And that's, re- and this is the thing, it all goes back to the design of things because it's just like how, the way that things work. I as a constituent go to my counselor saying there's a drug problem, I wanna fix it. Counselor leans on the cops, cops lean on the victims. And it just becomes a bunch of people crushing each other down instead of like addressing the fact that this person's on the street because they have lost their job they're injured it's a vicious circle it's a vicious circle and it's designed that way and that's the thing it's just like to detask the police it just means taking like certain roles out of their responsibility they can't prevent crime um they're also in charge of victim assistance I do believe that the police help victims, but like there's a certain portion of victim assistance that needs to just be pushed right over to social work. You know what I mean? And this yes. is where we really need to reevaluate what modern policing is. Like we can separate it into public safety, emergency management, and like violent offender enforcement and still have three different ways to enforce the law without it being police brutality you know what i, I mean because i'll, I'll give yeah. you an i'll give you an example i'm sure you're familiar with uh james Persillo and that unfortunate uh, streetcar shooting i think it was in 2020 i want to say 2014 yeah 20, yes so 
Um, and again, I could be wrong and I'm wrong a lot, but this, I think I'm right about, mm -hmm. um, I believe he was getting paid up until his last appeal was heard. So even after his conviction, he was yeah. still he was still getting paid by the Toronto police. That is absolutely unacceptable. And that is one of the systemic changes that need to take place. Yeah. And I know I might get in trouble for this, but this is where unions can sometimes be to the process of innovation. Unions, they do this collective bargaining. They just want you to get the wages and get paid. But it's just like, what type of professional development is being driven by the union? That's something I want to know. I want to know, like, also, how are you engaging your officers in this? Because it's just like, for us to be able to address corruption, the police themselves need to give up the, their bad apples. You know what I mean? It's not just us. It is them. And the only way for us to get through this is by like really sitting down and being like, what is the social contract now? Are we honoring it? Do we need to update it? Because yeah, like law enforcement, it's necessary in certain situations like domestic violence, um, shootouts, whatever. But there needs to be a different way that we identify a threat and respond to it. As someone who's worked security, I've never had a gun and I've had to like de-escalate situations in mental health wards on the street. I've had to do it in clubs and like something about guys drinking makes them King Kong. So it's like, it's a lot of me just being like, hey, you need to calm down. I'm here to help you. Whatever is happening is not as bad as it seems. And like that itself is law enforcement. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No one had to die. <laughs> I was, uh, I was a security guard as well. And I took a class not a class, a course or whatever, uh, in uh, nonviolent crisis intervention. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, it, it's possible. You know what I mean? And this is where I never had to use it, though. To... I never had to use it, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's just like there's no, like the violence that we're seeing on the street. It's a lot of organized crime. And for the police to deal with that, like, I will let them deal with that. But when it comes to civilians, it's just like, we need to fix that. And I'm willing to work with the police to talk about that because like, I imagine some of them are burnt out like the rest of us. And it, we need to help those people transition out because burnout leads to bad service. And that's something I think policing itself has to revisit. It's just like, is your whole work structure conducive to actually doing law enforcement or are you just agents of politics you know what i mean because the like the police should be in, able to enforce the law but when it came to the encampments i don't believe the police should have been there they could have fully sent the mental health workers that they just put forward to get take survey of who's in there what they need what it would take to help them safely transition out of the park it could have been handled so much differently but you know the privileged like we want our parts <laughs> so yeah it's it's one of those things where it's just like we ourselves need to re reimagine our ideas of safety and how we make other people feel safe because not a lot of people can tell the difference between someone who's ingested substance or someone who's having like a psychotic break and the more we learn about mental health safe drug use all that other stuff the better we as individuals can like help to it so um yeah one thing that i
would also like to see is just better drug kit testing. Like fentanyl is destroying this city right now. And it's a crisis and a crisis because it's just like, we could be educating people on how to identify this, how to treat it, but it's just like, we're not doing that. Absolutely. And, yeah. It's but, also, yeah but also, but also for some better. reason, I, I don't understand. Like I had a, I had a brother who actually, he died from a drug overdose at Seton house. Um, he, uh, I didn't know him. Uh, yeah. long, long story, but um, we grew up and we didn't, we knew about each other, but we didn't, we didn't have a relationship, but he, he passed away. Uh, either he knew, I don't know if he knew or not, but there was fentanyl in his crack or his cocaine, whatever he was smoking. And mm -hmm. when he smoked that, he, it ended up killing him. That's the thing. It's just like an education is so powerful. And if we make the tools accessible, people will take better care of themselves. It's just the political will behind it. You know what I mean? The war on drugs, it's existed for so long as a policy failure. We have studied it. We know it's not working, but the lack of political will to create rehab beds, to create halfway houses and all those things that could help people get the mental health care that they need. It's, it's not happening because that's not a priority of the, the leader. And it's so sad because it's like, it addiction doesn't have to destroy people. It doesn't have to destroy families. If it's approached from a public health perspective, it's like treating a broken leg. You know what I mean? You take the time to get the steps and heal and all that stuff. So yeah, it's one of those things with policing where it's just like the police have been given so much responsibilities because politicians do not want to take responsibility themselves. It's easier to just send out the agents of the state to be like, oh, yeah, like they're the bad guys. But it's like it's the politicians sending them, you know, Absolutely. it's like the G20 and all those other events. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about public health next. Um. I'm just interested okay. in your opinion on how the city handled the pandemic at the municipal level, of course, and what we learned. And in your opinion, are we ready for the next pandemic? So honestly, I was, <laughs> I was overwhelmed about the announcements of the announcements of the announcements. Like I just spent half my day just being like, so who's actually going to say something? Um, I think it could have been handled a lot better. I think John Tory did the bare minimum, which was show up to read the announcements. A lot of people think he handled it well, but it's like, it's not like John was giving vaccines or like managing vaccine hunters to help people find them. So I definitely think there's a lot of room for improvement. The army came in like that is insane to me. If the army came in to do my job, please fire me because like just looking at the long-term care homes, like the nonprofit ones that we had, it's like we had a model for managing this. But what did we do? We just, we squandered an opportunity to actually address this by looking to leaders like Doug and public health information and neither are qualified to give it. You know what I mean? It's a classic, they needed to get out of the way and they didn't. Um, I remember growing up during SARS volume one <laughs> Yes, and I feel like that was a lot easier to manage than this. 
And with all the knowledge we have and all the university hospitals just on University Avenue, it's like, how could we not come up with a cohesive plan that that wasn't political? And that's something where I feel that public health needs its own autonomy from the city. Because it's just I can't make public health decisions. You know what I mean? There needs to be professionals in the room for that, and they need to be given the podium for that. It can't just be the mayor announcing everything. Let professional people explain it to the public because so much can get lost in political soundbiting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I wish it went better. I think it can get better. And I think that emergency management plan is so needed. Just looking at the hospitals, this could have been avoided if we actually had an emergency management plan that was crafted by the people who would have to apply it. So yeah, my whole goal with public health is just clear the way for them, give them the tools that they need to launch community level health interventions with community organizations and use that data to make better policy. Yeah, like I'm not admit I'm not afraid to admit what I don't know. So it's just like, yeah, clear I will clear the path. You do your thing and I will help you. Yeah. So do you have a website you can tell our listeners about where they can uh, find you, read your literature, contact you if necessary? Yes. www.cb4to.com. That's, that sounds great. And, um, you know, I just want to thank you for doing this interview with me, uh, trusting me to facilitate the process and, uh, you know, election night for me is usually really great. You know, I'm in front of the TV watching each of the races in each of the wards, plus the mayoral race all over the GPA. Yeah. I'm going to have to do that remotely this year because I'm going to be out of the country on election day, uh, which, okay. remi which reminds me, guys, uh, my listeners, uh, advanced voting is October 7th to the 14th. Get out and vote. Uh, voting day is October 24th. Uh, get out and vote. It is very important. You know, I find that the main problem uh, that you're going to run into is that a vote for John Tory is a vote for John Tory. But a person who doesn't vote is also a vote for John Tory. And yeah. that's, that's the section of people that, that people have to reach. Everyone should be voting. And I, I know that we're the second election in this year. People probably have uh, election fatigue at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Some people maybe even have PTSD. I don't know. Um, but uh, you know what? Again, thank you so much for this interview. I wish you nothing but luck in your campaign trail. I, I can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you. I really appreciate having this space. Um, I'm open to just having these conversations all the time because it's, this is what energizes me, you know, uh, learning about people and like the world that they live in because yeah, we're here together, but our realities are still very different and the same. So thank you so much for like this encouraging conversation. And like, I hope to see you on the canvassing trail. <laughs> we'll see what I can do. You know, I, I, I'm a truck driver during the day, so. Oh no, I'm gonna come to you. Oh okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm no, I, I'm in I'm in Ward One. All right, awesome. Yeah, 
I'll knock your door <laughs> one of these days and drop off a postcard, have a chat in real life. That sounds great. Awesome. All right. Um, so, man, I don't know how to close this. <laughs> yeah, this is such a good conversation. I don't even know how to close it. You're going to have to shut me off. <laughs> I just want to thank you again, honestly. Um, I, I really, each each person that I interview, especially the mayoral candidates, it's like I learned something, you know. Um, I don't know if you've listened before, but one thing that I have said is that, uh, you know, for 12 years I've wanted to, I've wanted to run, but it's never been the right time. And I have so much respect, whether I agree with you politically or not is not the point. I have so much respect for everybody, including yourself, yes. that puts their name on the ballot because that takes guts. Thanks. You're welcome. I, I appreciate that. It's um, it's definitely daunting going against the guy who's using my phone and cable to run his campaign. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, I appreciate it, and I love this city, so I'm always going to be fighting for it. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.